If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn them to Matthew chapter 7. I think I beat him. I said earlier that uh, a couple weeks ago that I was trying to race my son to finish the Sermon on the Mount. Well, we're finishing the Sermon on the Mount today. So he, he took that literally and let me win, I guess. So it's good to know that's the type of son he's going to be. Let me go ahead and just jump in and reading Matthew chapter 7. Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then the rains fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand and the rains fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and it pounded the house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because his teaching was like one who had authority, not like their scribes. As we close out the Sermon on the Mount, if I could kind of just boil this final passage to something. I have a string on my suit there. There we go. It was going to bother me through the whole sermon if I didn't deal with that. If I could boil everything down that we've talked about through this whole series, I think we could just boil it to two words. And it would be something like this. Intentionally living like Jesus. That's been our theme through this whole thing. Intentionally living like Jesus means knowing and doing. Jesus sees both of those realities as a vital part of what it means to follow him. You must both know and do. But in our current cultural atmosphere, I think our cultural moment more prioritizes one of these things over the other, and I'll see if you can guess which one just through this story. Over the past few months, I have learned a lot about pregnancy. Like I have studied pregnancy. We have taken new, newborn classes, uh, like so many things that I've learned. Did you know uh, a pregnant woman's uh, blood volume increases by like 50%? Um, a lot of that with new hormones and chemicals and things like that. I have learned that you do not say you're being hormonal right now. Don't ever say that. I would never say that. I already knew better than that. But what you may not know is with that comes a heightened sense of smell that pregnant women can smell better. That's why uh, they tend to notice things that you may not. Uh, I've learned words like vernix and breach and cephalopelvic disproportion. But, But here's the thing. Of all of these things that I've learned that to, you know, how do you go about pushing in labor and, and what's the proper form and all the different positions? Do you know what I can do about any of it? Nothing. It's horrible. I hate not being able to do anything. It feels like over and over again, Haley will say something like, oh, I think I might be having a contraction. I'm like, okay, what do I need to do? I need to get the car ready. Do I need to load up stuff? Is it time to go? What can we do? She's like, you don't need to do anything. Like, yeah, but I learned all this stuff. I need to do something with it, right? Or we go to the doctor and we go into the doctor's office and we wait for like 45 minutes. And the doctor finally comes in and like listens to the baby's heartbeat, measures Haley's belly, and then says, okay, you're good. Come back next week. And I'm like, but doc, like, what do we do? Like, Don't do anything. I, I hate that feeling. 
There's this gap between all the information I've learned and right now my ability to do anything about it. And and I hate it. Now, I know what some of you parents are saying is you're like, just enjoy it because it's about to be that you have to do everything. So (laughs) dial it back. And I do get it. I, I understand that. But I think there's an interesting kind of premise from there to culture as a whole because there's this gap between information and action that seems to be growing all around us. And there's some really interesting ramifications of that on the human psyche. I've been reading a couple books about that this week. I read this book uh, by Neil Postman. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, Incredible book. If you have not read this book, I strongly say, I think like every high schooler should have to read this book. Now, albeit, I will confess this book is like hyper uh, antagonistic towards television and like taking in information. His whole argument is essentially television will rot your brain and you should read books instead. And I, I do recognize the irony of reading that book and then going home and watching television. But nonetheless, I think he makes some really, really good points uh, in this book. In his book, he coins this phrase of what he calls an information to action ratio. Um, he, he notes that over the span of human history, the information-to-action ratio of human knowledge was, was pretty close together. So, so think about it. Right? If you could think back to 300, 400 years ago, there wasn't a daily newspaper to keep you informed of the happenings of the top officials around you. So yeah, maybe once every so often some herald would come in to give a decree of the king or some soldier would come in with an entourage to tell you that taxes were going up. But on a day-to-day basis... If there was any headline or news, so to speak, it wasn't delivered to your doorstep on a newspaper or pushed through your smartphone. It was probably told to you personally, and it was actually probably something that you could do about it. So you're pulling your fishing boat in from the lake, and Farmer Joe runs up to you, and he bursts through, and he yells, Hey, all my cows have gotten loose, and they're eating Farmer Greg's wheat. I need help. That's news. That's really important news because Farmer Greg's wheat's actually going to be how you have bread this winter. You really don't need Farmer Joe's cows eating Farmer Greg's wheat. So you hear the information and then, and then you just say, oh man, that really stinks and go on about your day. No, you jump up and you take off with Farmer Joe to go wrangle his cows out of Farmer Greg's field because it matters to your life. The information you learn is in direct correlation with the action that you take. So this is Postman's point. He says, historically, humans have grown up and lived in this world where the information that we intake is always correlated with the action we output. But what he blames as the telegraph in the 1840s, uh, there's been this onward trajectory and separation between learning more and more information with having less and less to do with it. He talks about how this creates a lot of problems from anxiety to just lack of critical thinking because we're all about reading and garnering information, but we're never about doing anything about it. So think, think about all the news that comes to you on a daily basis, this constant influx of headlines that are pushed through your phone notification. And by the way, he wrote this book in like 1985. It's probably best that he didn't survive to see the smartphone because it would have went a little bit ballistic with all of that. But there's this constant influx of headlines. There's even the need to fill local news with an hour's worth of time telling you stories that you really have no control over or say in. So I would just say, a little practice exercise, if you watch the news tonight with every story, ask the question, so what do I do about that? 
And likeliness is the answer is always going to be nothing. The Trump indictment and arrest and trial, constant inflation, cost rise, Russian missile tax in Ukraine. What are you supposed to do about those things? And then apparently like orcas are doing strategic designated attacks on boats. That's a thing in the news recently. What are you supposed to do about that? Uh, Pat Sajak is retiring from Wheel of Fortune. I don't think you're going to stop that from happening. It doesn't matter how much you like watching Wheel of Fortune. There's nothing you can do about that. There's no action for us to take, regardless of how many times we read or how well we understand that headline. Or at least the actions you can take do next to nothing other than polarize yourself on the Internet, because that's really about the only actions we take anymore. So we go online and we start a hashtag like death to orcas, they're ruining the fishing industry. And then you get on this side if you don't like that. And you're like, save the seas for the orcas. We need to. And that's just all you do. And you just portray more information and polarize and camp out in your camps and build a trench in between you. And welcome to the modern age of information, the information era. Here's my point. There's a major disconnect between the information we learn and the daily actions we take because of it. And this has developed a cultural moment where we obsess over knowing and then make little to no effort to change or act. And I would say all of that to point that out to you to say this. That line of thought or that method of thinking will utterly destroy your ability to follow Jesus. It will ruin you when it comes to following Jesus. You can know all about Jesus. You can know all about theology. You can know right from wrong. And that's important. That's a big part of the Sermon on the Mount. Intentionally living like Jesus does mean knowing. But that's not enough to be a true disciple. Hence, Jesus' ending to his Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus is going to resolve kind of the crescendo of all of his teachings, all of the things that he holds most important in his kingdom. When he goes to finish this sermon, he doesn't end it with a mnemonic technique to kind of help you memorize the information and lock it into your brain. He ends his sermon with a call to action. So let me just break this down for you kind of in a way line by line. Verse 24. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Take that and jump down to verse 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them. A lot of times we want to draw the line about those who know and those who don't know, those who hear and those who don't hear. But Jesus seems just as concerned. It's not that Jesus isn't concerned with that. But Jesus is also concerned with those who would hear what he has to say and then not do anything about it. Intentionally living like Jesus is knowing and doing. Now, that word for do here in the Greek is actually a really important word. If you ever take elementary Greek, it will be one of the first Greek verbs you learn. In fact, it may very well be the first Greek verb you learn. It's the Greek verb poieo. So therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and acts on them, that's the word poieo. It's got a really large semantic range, but at its base, it just kind of means to make or, or to do. But what we often miss in our English translations is how prevalent this word is 
in the Sermon on the Mount. It's used like 600 plus times in the New Testament, but it's actually used 23 times just in the Sermon on the Mount. If we could have heard Jesus preach, well, Jesus probably would have preached it in Aramaic, but if we could have heard Matthew read his gospel aloud and listen to this in the Greek, we would have heard this word come up over and over again, poieo, poieo, poieo. So it would go something like this. Now, my Greek professor would kill me because this is not good Greek grammar, but it'll work to get my point across. So the uh, golden rule. Therefore, poieo people, like you would want to be poieoed. Again, not great Greek grammar, but it works to get the point across. Or if you jump down a few more verses, good trees, poieo, good fruit. Bad trees, poieo, bad fruits. Or if you go further, only those who poieo, the will of my father, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. We miss this because in English it gets translated bear fruit or put into practice or action or do. But it's all the exact same Greek word. And it actually starts back in chapter 5, verse 19, when Jesus is getting ready to launch into his explanation of the law. And he says, whoever does poieo and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom. So yes, there is good in knowing and teaching, but Jesus will not stand for someone who has knowledge but lacks action. You cannot be a disciple who knows a lot about Jesus but does nothing about it. It's not something Jesus allows for. The running theme, the running drumbeat of the Sermon on the Mount is over and over again. Poieo, go, do, take action, bear fruit, put into practice over and over and over. Jesus is saying this. And so he gives it. And then in between, he gives a little parable to help you understand. So everyone who poieos these words, who puts into action, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who doesn't put these into action will be like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Jesus is contrasting two realities here where the livelihood of a person is at stake, hinging upon the decisions that he makes about where he or she builds their house. So the wise man and the foolish man. Now, to us, I think we kind of get it. It it makes a lot of sense now to a Hebrew crowd their minds would have instantly snapped to Proverbs. The second you hear the wise man contrasted with the foolish man, the very first thing you think is Proverbs because Proverbs over and over and over is going to contrast these two types of people. So the wise man does this, 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 and this, but the foolish man does this, 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 and this. So the wise man fears the Lord and shuns evil, but a fool is hot-headed and reckless. A wise man keeps himself under control, but a fool gives vent to his anger. And there's Hundreds of others that we could talk about. So Jesus is doing a very similar thing here. But what is the dividing line, the differentiation for Jesus between the wise man and the foolish man? The interesting thing here is it's actually not whether or not they listen and garner the proper information. In Jesus's parable, both actually listen to what Jesus has to say. Both the wise man and the fool are the people that are listening to what Jesus says. And I think the implication is at least comprehending the ideas behind what Jesus is communicating. And Jesus says, both the wise man and the fool, listen to me. That is not the dividing line. The dividing line is what they do with the information once they listen. What makes you wise or foolish 
hinges on whether or not you put his word into practice. It hinges on how you build your house. Because everyone's building a house. We don't always think about it that way, but if I can, again, take you back to Jesus' time, it helps you kind of metaphorically understand what Jesus is getting at. Because for us today, houses, it's really just something that's kind of bought and sold. It's where you rest and relax, and that's about all there is to your house. In Jesus' day, your house was so much more important than that. Because in his day, really, houses weren't even bought and sold. They were multi-generational. And actually, that's still the case for a good portion of the world. Here in America, we don't do that. Uh, but a couple years ago, we got to go visit Haley's sister and uh, her husband in Bosnia. And Bosnia does this. You'll, you'll travel kind of outside the city and you'll find these giant white homes with red roofs. And every time there's a new generation, they add another floor. And so you'll have the grandparents on the first floor and another family there and a brother here. And, and they just keep building up because all the family lives in the same house. And so you either live in the house of the family you grew up with or you marry another family and go move into their house. So houses were not just representative of where you relax. It was representative of your family. Furthermore, most people wouldn't go in and work in the office every day. There's not like a commute you made to go do your job. You might go farm or you might go fish. But generally, you would take your resources and you would bring them back to your house and prepare them to go and be sold. So your house was where your family lived, but it was also your marketplace. It was your job. It was your identity. It was what you stood for. So in the Bible, terms of building a house is this metaphorical representation of building a livelihood. It was the entirety of your life. It's a common mental picture to ask the question, what are you building your life on? What are you building your family on, your occupation, your identity? Because in Jesus's mind, all of those things actually share the same foundation. The foundation of your job and the foundation of your family are not two separate foundations. They are one and the same. And that's the interesting thing. When we're talking foundation of a house, you can't really always see the foundation of the house while looking from the house, looking at the house from the outside. And I think Jesus does entail this in this sermon series, in this Sermon on the Mount closing, because the wise man's house and the foolish man's house, they might really well look the same on the outside. They both might have families, pretty good 401ks, steady job, vacation once a year. Every person is building a house on some type of foundation and in a world where all of these houses are being built and there's disagreement on who's wise and who's foolish, the question we have to ask is, how do we know the difference? How do we know the difference between whose house is the wise man and whose is the foolish man's house? And this is what Jesus says with his answer of the looming flood. Because in both situations, both of the man who listens and builds on Jesus and the man who listens and builds elsewhere, the same reality befalls them. Verse 25, the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house. Verse 27, the rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew that pounded that house. I've actually learned over the last week in studying this, there's actually two general interpretations for this. Uh, There's the most common, and that's just the idea of hard times, that the flood is representative of the hard times you might face in life. So you can build a house uh, on, uh, you can build your lifestyle on whatever foundation you feel is best. 
But there will be a day when that foundation is threatened by disappointment or unmet expectations or the loss of something you thought would always be there, that diagnosis, that, that, diagnosis, that rejection, that phone call. And if your foundation is faulty, then there's a good chance that that foundation is going to be washed away. And everything you built will go with it. Now, there's another interpretation of that. It's a little bit more of a traditional interpretation rooted in the Old Testament that actually ties this concept of a flood, not just to the hard times in life, but actually to God's judgment. The obvious tie would be of Noah and the flood. But there's also verses like Isaiah 28, 17, which talks about how in God's judgment, hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. And I think to some extent, both can apply. I think there can be flash floods, so to speak, in terms of hardship and difficulties that you might face. And those floods can often have the ability to rip away what you've built if it's not on a proper foundation. But there is also a day coming where God's judgment will pour out on the world like a flood. We talked about this two weeks ago. There is a day where God will set everything to right. That he will expose and unveil every secret. Everything will be laid bare. A day where every foundation will be exposed. And so for Jesus, everyone is building a lifestyle. And there is a looming flood to come. Be it a flash flood of hardships or the day God sets forth to bring everything to right. And the question is not... Who is and who is not going to be effective? Who's building their house in the floodplain and who isn't? Jesus seems to imply it's coming for both. The question isn't who's good and who's bad. Notice Jesus makes no moral saying here. He talked about previously a good tree and good fruit and a bad tree and bad fruit. He could have easily used those same words to say a good man builds his house and a bad man, but he doesn't. He uses the term wise and fool. It's an intellectual conversation. It's not about that level of morality. But even so, the question's not as much who's intelligent and who's ignorant. The question that Jesus is asking is, what is your life built on? What are you building your life on? And that's not some hypothetical question that you can write off as a fun philosophical thought exercise. It's a question that Jesus demands you answer. What is your life built on? Greed? Money, materialism, this feeling that if I can just get more stuff, then I'll be happy. Then I'll build the perfect life. If I can just be well respected in the community and people could understand what I was really trying to accomplish, then, then I would do it. If I could just gain more influence and power, then finally I would have the life I've always dreamed of. Maybe it's competition. If I could just be better than that person, finally I would have the life I've dreamed of. That's what you're building. It can be on appearance, beauty, youth, popularity, intimacy. If I can just be well liked, if I can be regarded as the pretty one, the strong one, the most known, it can be built on autonomy and freedom and hedonism, if I can just do what I want without all of these uppity people judging me for what I want to do, and it can even be good things. It can be being built upon the ideal mom or dad, being the strong, upstanding American citizen, being smart and well-read. But with all that, I ask the question, what are you building your life on? And to just echo the words of Jesus without judgment, without 
any attempt to fearmonger, but just to say what my Savior has said. Any foundation apart from him and his way will crumble. Or in the words of Jesus, will collapse with a great crash. See, merely knowing about the way of Jesus is not enough. It demands doing. It demands building. It demands acting. And that flies in the face of a culture that overvalues information and largely ignores action. See, the thing is, we've convinced ourselves that transformation comes with more information. Or we might take some little cute kind of formula and say, if you could just take some information, gain some inspiration, then you'll find transformation. And so really, Pastor, what it's your job to do is to get up and give us all the right information we need and to do it in a way that inspires us a little bit. And if you can kind of touch those two things, finally, we'll find the way to live this transformed life. And Jesus comes in and says, that's not enough. You cannot tie transformation to information. And to prove that point, I would just say, look at the culture around us. We are more informed now than we have been in human history. We have more access to knowledge. We know more truths. We know how science works in better ways. We know medicine. We know technology. And that's a great thing. Has it ever transformed us? No, because you'll find humanity still struggles with the exact same things Jesus addressed 2,000 years ago. It turns out information cannot change you. you. You know this. Because almost all of us have encountered the doctor that knows all about the human body and still doesn't eat right himself. Or the professor that teaches business really, really well, but they couldn't keep their own business afloat. Or the counselor whose marriage failed. Or the pastor who washed out of ministry. And see, that's why Jesus didn't come just to teach you a way of living and say, so this is the way. Good luck. I'll see you when you get done. Yes, he spent a lot of time teaching. In fact, as he taught, people were amazed. Verse 28 and 29, when he finished saying these things, teaching these things, the crowds were astonished at his teachings because he taught like one who had authority, not like their scribes. But every teaching that Jesus gave came with this understanding that there was no amount of information coupled with the right inspiration that could prompt transformation. It does not work that way. So if you're here today just thinking, man, maybe if I can just go to church and I can get just that little spark of inspiration, finally I'll be ready to go. Finally, I can change my life. I'm sorry to say it's not going to happen. That is not the model God has set forth for your transformation. Rather, there is only a Savior who died in your place who paid the price for your sin, who restores you to right relationship with God Almighty and then gives you as a gift the transforming Holy Spirit to change your life. Transformation does not come through information and inspiration. It comes through the Holy Spirit. And that's a one-time event. The moment you give your life to Jesus. And if there's anyone in here that you've never made that decision and you've just been building your life on the sand and you're thinking, Philip, I got to find something better. 
then that can happen right here today. The transformation is awaiting complete with forgiveness, the separation of sins, and the restoration of your life. It is available. It is a one-time event, and it is an ongoing daily process. The transformation of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event, the moment you give your life to Jesus, and then it is an ongoing daily practice. It is the already but not yet of your life. It's the moment you surrender yourself, declare Jesus to be king, and it's the ongoing need to practice within community. To find people to hold you accountable, to build lives together, not just individually. The the Sermon on the Mount is all about practice, about action, about doing, about application. And over over the past five months, that's how long we've been doing the Sermon on the Mount now, but we're done today, so... Over the past five months, we've created this list of practices and things that you can go and do of ways that you can be intentionally like Jesus. In fact, I put them on the back of your bulletin this week. Things like intentionally living like Jesus means trusting his kingdom, not yours or the world's. Intentionally living like Jesus means changing people around you, not letting them change you. Intentionally living like Jesus means trusting the scriptures the way Jesus trusted the scriptures. It means dealing with anger correctly. It means upholding God's standard for love and intimacy. It means living into truth, not trying to spin reality to get your way. It means treating everyone the same way Jesus treats us. It means trusting the Father's attention and approval is enough, and you don't need it from anywhere else or anyone else. It means entrusting everything to God because you trust everything actually already is God's. It means embracing a culture of correction and avoiding a culture of condemnation. It means understanding God's love and responding in prayer. It means loving like Jesus and following his way. And the question then is, is this how you build your life? Is this what your life is built on? I don't don't know where you are. And I don't know what you may be struggling with in this list or maybe among other things. But God does. And there's a good chance the Holy Spirit, that that ever small voice in the back of your mind and in your heart is poking something and saying, that's the one. We talked about it a couple months ago, and I'm here to talk with you about it now. That he's bringing something up to the surface of your mind. That there's something digging into the pit of your soul and touching that very part of you that you're like, I don't want anyone to even talk to me about that. And no one's supposed to know about that. And God's saying, yeah, but I do. We need to talk about it. And maybe it's just that you need to come to him in the first place. You've never given your life, and today's the day to do that. But you know it means that if you do it, you're going to have to give something up. You're going to have to give up that anger that you've been holding on to, that resentment that's inside of you, that you're saying, I can't give up that. You don't understand what happened. Or God's telling you to give up that relationship that doesn't uphold God's standard of love and intimacy. To let go of that pressure you keep placing on yourself. To strive for the approval of people who don't matter and the rest on the approval of the Father who has given you approval through His Son. Or to let go of the hate against people who don't live for or think like we do because they don't have the hope that we have. And to actually love them like Jesus loves them. To to relinquish the power over your life and to take the little kingdom you've been building on the sand and to take it to God's eternal kingdom built on the rock and join in what he's doing. 
And none of that is solved with more information. It's solved through transformation. Here's where I'll end. We already have enough information. I don't don't know if you understand that. You have enough information. You have enough information to be transformed and you have enough information to go and transform. We as a church have enough information. We don't need to be smarter. We don't need to have access to more resources. We don't need to have the most cutting edge strategies and the most effective books. Now, I'm not saying that means we stop learning altogether, but I'm saying if we want to be an influential church, it doesn't mean we gain more information. It means we go and do what we need is to pui at o. To put into practice. But that comes down to your choice. To what you are going to do. So I ask the question one final time. What are you building your life on? Are you intentionally building it on the way of Jesus? Are you building it on anything else? And again, without judgment without condemnation, without any attempt to fear monger, with a simple commentary directly from the words of Jesus, the rains will fall, the rivers will rise, the winds will blow and pound the house, and it will collapse.